Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us. This is a personal finance show. It's on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein. Today is episode 221. It's titled, Prepare for the Next Financial Crisis. This weekend is the 10th anniversary of the 2008 financial crisis, specifically the date that the investment bank Lehman Brothers went bankrupt. I remember at the time I was in San Diego, got upgraded to the presidential suite. The suite had its own elevator like completely on elevator. I had to go back to the front desk to ask him, how, how do I get to my room? It was really surreal because I'm up there. There's a grand piano. There's a huge conference table, lots of couches and chairs, looking down on the streets below, and everything seems normal. And yet the stock market was absolutely tanking. At the time, Jim Dunnigan, chief investment officer at PNC Advisors, said, You have to throw out the history books because there's really nothing to compare this to. Any speculation as to what inning we're in becomes difficult because each step of the way seems to bring another drop. Art Hogan, chief marketing strategist for Jeffries and Company, said, We've never witnessed this before. There's no roadmap for this. It was unprecedented. We didn't know how it was going to end. I felt like it was, but I didn't know. And and for months afterwards, it just was so surreal. I'd go through the airport and, and everything seemed normal, but I knew it wasn't. And I learned a lot from that financial crisis. And in some ways, it very much changed how I invested and how I invest. And I think it changed many individuals and institutions how they invest. I got an email last week from Stephen, and he was kind of thinking about this. He plays, he's in a group of card players, or they play cards, not sure how often. Mostly guys, 35 to 45. Some are are 50 to 60. Most earn over $100,000. And Stephen was wondering now that this bull market has been going on for 10 years, there, there are many individuals that have never really experienced a severe bear market. And so he posed a question on, on the group app, just sort of exploring this idea that, they, that they've never been tested. And how would they react to a severe bear market? And he said he got, the, he got some pushback. They felt like, and this is not 
this is typical, that they were in control, that the success they've had investing in this bull market has been because of the choices they have made, and that has allowed for good returns. And, and they feel like they would do fine if we entered into a bear market. Some would ride it through. Most said they, they would ride it through. But it's interesting to think about because some of us haven't experienced a bear market, something severe. And when I talk about bear market, so after Lehman Brothers collapsed, U.S. stocks fell 46%. The housing market was collapsing. Unemployment soared. And it really had a huge impact on people. Here is Richard Weinroth. He's 60 now, so he would have been 50 at the time. This is a quote from Barron's. He said, when, I, when the market crashed, I lost my job. The Arizona housing system had collapsed, and my house was underwater. I lost around 40% of my retirement portfolio. It went from about $1.3 million down to about 800000 I used to be a more aggressive investor because I figured I'd be working for a while. I ended up just sort of shifting more to index funds, dividend-paying stocks, and just a lot more cash. It changed them. This is Karen Coons. Coons. She's 63 now, associate professor at University of West Virginia. Would have been, what, 53 at the time. She says, I am not in the market for the long term and will get out quickly. If I stay for a whole summer, that's already too long. I have available cash and investments in metals and crypto because I think they're a good alternative to, to the stock market. Chris Mo Moise. 58. He says, I think a recession could happen in the next year, so I am now holding a lot of cash. Looking at gold, safe bonds, also buying consumer staples that have a margin of safety built into the price. That's how a few sample investors are reacting. Jeff Carbone, he's a managing partner at Cornerstone Wealth in Charlotte, North Carolina, said, when I sit with clients today, they say, I can't emotionally deal with another 2008 situation. When we look across investors in the U.S., in 2007, 65% of Americans owned stock. This is according to a Gallup poll. By this year, the number's down to 55%. And 31% of the people ages 18 to 29 hold stock in their portfolio. And that compares to, so those, let's see, people's ages 18 to 29 held stocks from 2009 to 2017. And that's versus 42% in the same age cohort from 2001 to 2008. So you have this, this younger generation is holding less stocks. Barron's points out that for many Americans, the market's gains simply haven't registered on an emotional level. Since the bottom, we've recovered the market since March 9th, 2009. According to Wilshire Associates, 
equity values have increased $27.8 trillion, 337%. We've recovered all of the losses plus an additional 82% on top of that. But this study by Betterment, the robo-advisor firm, they asked 2,000 people, this is a recent survey, this was quoted in Barron's, 48% thought the stock market had not gone up at all in the past 10 years. Well, 18% actually said it had gone down. We have to at least be aware of what the market is doing. And as I, I looked at it, it was really interesting because it seemed that how you invest very much depended on your experience in the 2008 crisis. Some that, that, that weren't impacted at all, particularly younger generations, they're actually much more aggressive in their asset allocation. Thomas DeLuca and Gene Young, the research analysts at Vanguard, Center for Investor Research, they went through the data, 4 million households that invest with Vanguard, and found that younger investors fell into different camps. Most millennials, so those born from 1980 to 2000, had aggressive allocations, investing about 90% of their money in stocks. That was kind of the median, which is aggressive. Yet a quarter of Vanguard's millennial investors were very risk-averse. And 22% didn't have any stocks at all. So those that invested after 2008, 22% had no stocks at all while those that invested before 2008, so basically experienced the crisis, only 10% completely spurned stocks. Which is actually unusual, because it makes it sound like those that were actually invested during the crisis were willing to continue with stock exposure. But those that started after 2008 were, were less likely to have stocks. That's just a subset. Most were actually very, very aggressive. Those that were actually investing had 90% in stocks. And so I think it's difficult to, to make broad-based conclusions about how investors are going to invest, other than to recognize that overall, equity allocation is less. Is less. But it does appear that there, there's a... A divergence. Those that are investing tend to be more aggressive. This is a, a study by Fidelity looking at 19.7 million retail brokerage accounts. 47% were held in aggressive portfolios, so defined as at least 85% exposure to stocks. In 2008, that number was 40%. Kind of fascinating because it, it, it seems like the data is conflicting. But the question that I have then, because I, I do think I've seen retirees never return to the stock market. I think others are, are more risk averse. But I think because it has been 10 years since we've had a, a significant 
sell-off greater than 20%, that there is an entire cohort that's willing to be aggressive in their investing. They've been definitely rewarded for that aggressiveness. And the question is, how will they react during the next recession, the next significant bear market? One of the major changes that has occurred since 2008 is just the increase of passive investing through index mutual funds and through ETFs. Total ETF assets, this is according to data from JP Morgan, $5 trillion. That's up from $0.8 trillion in 2008. And they estimate that 35 to 45% of equity globally is indexed, either through index mutual funds or ETFs. JP Morgan's global head of quantitative and derivative strategies, Marco Kolonovic, he, he says this shift from active to passive and specifically the decline in active value investors reduces the ability of the market to prevent and recover from large drawdowns. That's an unknown as we head into the next financial crisis. Given the, the large, increasingly large allocation to passive investing, particularly to ETFs, how will people react? Will they sell? Will they rush to the exits? Will the drawdown be worse than, than what it might have otherwise? I don't know. Before we look at other changes that individual investors and institutions have undergone since the Great Recession, let me pause and share some words from this week's sponsors. If you've been using Mint to manage your finances, you know they shut down several months ago. Well, let me tell you about the budgeting solution, the financial tracking solution I've been using for the past number of months. It's Monarch Money. Monarch Money is the top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. You can create custom budgets like I've done. You can set goals, collaborate with your partner. And now you can get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com David. What I like about Monarch is the ability to customize what I want to see. I have custom budget categories, and then I can go on to the dashboard and see where I'm above trend on some of my spending. I especially like that Monarch will never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. After trying Monarch myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com David. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash David for your extended 30-day free trial. We have a brand new sponsor to our show. It's Yahoo Finance. Yahoo's been around for decades. My first email outside of work was a Yahoo email address. But the financial side, I've used on occasion primarily to get data for dividend histories for particular funds or ETFs. But I was pleasantly surprised to get back on Yahoo Finance to see how it's evolved over the years. Now it's really a financial dashboard. 
where you can get an understanding of what's going on with the markets. There are relevant articles from Bloomberg, Reuters, the Associated Press, and the Yahoo Finance team. You can look at the economic events calendar and see which data series are being released that day and what the consensus is. You can see the pulse of the markets at any time by going to Yahoo Finance. In addition, you could see all of your investments in retirement accounts in one place. With Yahoo Finance, you get a consolidated view of multiple accounts. Yahoo Finance serves as a financial hub for your retirement accounts, but also comprehensive financial news and analysis. You need to check out Yahoo Finance, particularly if you haven't been there in a while. Check it out at yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. The great financial crisis didn't just impact how individuals invest. It had an impact on how institutions invest, particularly hedge funds. There was a recent study by Jason M. Thomas. He's managing director and the director of research at the Carlyle Group. And he estimated that between 1997 and 2009, a two-standard deviation decline in the stock market. So roughly a a negative 9.57% decline was associated with a 3% decline in monthly hedge fund returns. But from 2009 to 2017, when the we had a two-standard deviation decline, again, about a 9.5% loss, that hedge funds returns only fell about 1%. In other words, hedge funds have become more risk-averse. He points out that that's because, in in some regards, hedge funds are, are looking for, not all of them, but many of them are looking for the next financial crisis, and they're trying to protect against that. And so they're hedging more, which means they're not participating as much in the bull market. I think to some extent, individuals, some individual investors have done that also. If they're holding a lot of cash, they're waiting for that next market crisis. Thomas writes, now that a global financial crisis had moved from abstract theoretical construct to a concrete experience, businesses hold more cash, banks are less leveraged, and policymakers have proven far more willing to intervene through new regulations as well as asset purchases and capital injections to stabilize markets. The events of 2008 to 2009 create appreciation for the possibility of events like 2008 and 2009, which prompts risk-reducing behavioral changes that make the system more stable. In other words, our reaction, institutions and individuals, to what happened, we know it can happen now, and it changes behavior. We become more risk-averse. And he argues that has made the world more stable. And so we're less likely to get that, at least that same type of crisis. 
He goes on, he says, the economic recovery that began in July 2009 has proven more resilient than many observers would have anticipated. Market participants and regulators learned from the Great Recession in ways that make the next subprime crisis less likely. Rather than fall prey to elaborate narratives of ruin or the tendency to expect the next recession will look like the last one, investors would be better served to focus on conventional risks and opportunities. The best investment strategies will continue to be those that outperform the market in most years rather than those that deliver spectacular returns in one year out of 100. And he points out, he showed that the contraction in U.S. gross domestic product for the year ended June 2009, the economy contracted 4.1%. That was an event that statistically happens only one out of 80.7 years. And the decline in corporate profits, where corporate profits fell 48% for the year ending December 2008, statistically, that happens once every 138 years. And so he's asking, is it better for us to invest in a way that we're waiting for trying to protect against these events that are quite rare once every 80 once every 138 years or is it better to invest in strategies that outperform in most years that doesn't mean that there's not risk out there in fact the biggest risk and as as I've read different Articles on, particularly Barron's this past week, on what could spark the next financial crisis. Many point to central bank balance sheets. Here's Felix Zuloff writing in Barron's. He says, while the Fed's balance sheet inflation since 2009 has inflated all sorts of asset prices, The serious reduction of its balance sheet should have just the opposite effect, namely to deflate asset prices. Now, we can contend whether it was the Fed's actions that flooded the economy that inflated asset prices. I've argued that that's not the case, that there's not been all this new money in the system. Instead, it's been what investors have done Because interest rates have been so low, they have been willing to seek for more yield, take more risk, buy stocks, buy high-yield bonds, emerging market bonds. And it'll be interesting to see what their behavior is. Peter Bukvar, he's chief investment officer at Bleakley Advisory Group, points out that net purchases of the Federal Reserve, the ECB, and the Bank of Japan will go from the equivalent of about $100 billion a month in the fourth fourth quarter of 2017 to zero starting the fourth quarter this year. So the central banks are not purchasing new assets. And one of the outstanding questions is, how will investors react to that? 
Peter Fisher. He's the former executive vice president at the Federal Reserve Bank of New York and a senior fellow at the Tuck School of Business. He spoke in March 2017 at Grant's Interest Rate Observers Spring Conference. He points something out that I I find really interesting. He said, curiously, the Fed has acknowledged no failures. All the experiments have been successful. Everyone. No failures. No negative side effects. No perverse consequences. Only diminishing returns. We have been most extraordinary about extraordinary monetary policy. Or what has been most extraordinary about extraordinary monetary policy is the awkward denial of uncertainty in defense of extraordinary actions. Wanting so badly to manipulate our expectations, the central bankers did not want to leave us any room for doubt. The Fed and other central banks appear to have avoided being candid about the uncertainty in order to maintain their credibility. But this is backwards. They cannot regain their credibility unless they are candid about the uncertainty and how they confront it. There's clearly some uncertainty when it comes to central bank actions. We don't know how it's going to turn out. But as investors, we have to decide whether we're going to prepare for Armageddon or invest in a way that Jason Thomas says, rather than fall prey to elaborate narratives of ruin or the tendency to expect the next recession will look like the last one, investors would be better served to focus on conventional risks and opportunity. In Barron's, Karen Kuhn's, the associate professor of University of West Virginia that I mentioned, she said the next crash will be worse than 2008. Institutions won't be too big to fail. They'll be too big to save. That's her worldview. I don't know. I don't think I agree with that. I don't know for sure. But then she's implementing her investment strategy based on her worldview. She said, I have available cash and investments in metals and crypto because I think they're a good alternative to the stock market. Investing for Armageddon over the past 10 years has cost investors significant returns. This was an environment to be able to take risk. My takeaway from the financial crisis and how I invest is first to separate speculations from investments. Speculations are hedges where there's some disagreements in terms of the return, cryptocurrencies, gold. But as we talked about last week, in order for that to work, you have to be precisely right. That cannot be the bulk of your investment. Because what if you're wrong? And what we need is to allocate most of our capital to investments. Asset classes that have a positive expected return. And why do they have a positive expected return? Well, they have cash flow. Stocks have dividends. Bonds have interest. And 
the riskier asset classes, such as stocks, they have cash flow growth. The, the, that dividend is growing over time. Earnings are growing over time, and their earnings fund the dividends. Now, we have to be aware of what investors are paying for that cash flow. That certainly does contribute to the return, but those are investments, and that's what we should be, most of our time should be focused on investments, asset classes with positive expected returns. We should be aware of the risk, the fact that we know stocks can fall 50% or more, but risk drawdowns aren't are only one aspect of risk. The more important aspect is what is the financial harm caused by that drawdown? And for m- most investors, particularly younger ones, they can afford the drawdown because they won't be financially harmed. They can continue to work and to save. As you get nearer to retirement, you have to be, can't be 80 to 90% stocks because then that 40 to 50% drawdown can severely have a severe negative impact on your retirement plans. And when we invest, we want to invest in a way that doesn't require us to outsmart other investors. Where if I'm going to be right, somebody else has to be wrong. Foreign currency, we've talked about that. Options are like that. Commodity futures are like that. Buying an individual stock. If your portfolio is all based on individual stocks, you're suggesting that the market is wrong and you have the price right and you're going to outperform the market because the stock will do better than the market because the market is wrong. The consensus of investors is wrong in terms of the earnings growth, etc. I don't invest that way. I would rather own stocks through an ETF or an index fund because then I buy the market and I focus on the asset allocation. Invest more in those opportunities that have the higher expected return given the level of risk. So I'm aware of market conditions. We're not, you can't be like the resp- half the respondees in that Betterment survey that were unaware that the stock market was even up over the past decade. We have to be aware of what the income stream is. What is the dividend yield right now for stocks? What are valuations? What is a reasonable expected return for the various asset classes? And then we allocate our example or our assets in that way. Perhaps you do have some hedges. I do. I think that's appropriate. Speculative assets, but generally should be less than 10% of your portfolio. So that's Episode 221, it's, it's been an amazing 10 years since the financial crisis. I've learned a lot. I learned a lot during the crisis. I've learned a lot. You learn a lot in investing, period, during crisis. I learned a lot during the internet bubble and crash. And I continue to learn to invest today. Nobody has all the answers. We learn by doing. You can get show notes for this episode at moneyfortherestofus.com. While you're there, please sign up for my free insider's guide. I'll email those links, those show notes to you weekly. I also write an essay just for insider's guide members where I share additional insights 
commentary, things I did not include in the podcast. The only way you can get that is sign up for that free insider's guide. And you, you can do that at moneyfortherestofus.com. Everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education and not considered your specific risk situation. Not provided investment advice, simply general education on money, investing, and the economy. Have a great week. <laughs>